Hey, this is Howard Jacobson, and I'm joined today by Janice Stanger, Ph.D., uh, creator of The Perfect Formula Diet, and you can find her at perfectformuladiet.com, and I'm really looking forward to today's call. Hello, Janice. Hi, Howard. So I've been reading your really interesting book, and I have to say when people send me their books about you know whole food, plant-based eating, there's a certain sense in which I brace myself because, like, how many different kind, how many different ways can you say it? And yet, when I was reading your book, I was really struck by the clarity and by the really interesting the comparisons and metaphors and explanations. There's a lot of stuff in there that was really eye-opening to me. So I really want to congratulate you on a, a great writing job. And anyone reading this book will get it pretty quickly. So this, this may be my, my go-to recommendation for someone um, who's just beginning to get interested in this way of eating. So thanks for that writing. You're welcome. So I'd love to talk about um, your story. Um, you are, are healthy now. You're, uh, you're free of various ailments. Um, and you're not a binge eater, but it wasn't always that way. Can you take us a little bit through the trajectory of what it took you to to go from the way you were eating you know, as a kid and through adulthood and, and, and up to your transformation? Oh, I'd love to. You know, and I think the central point about the way I used to eat was that food was the whole center of my life. It was like I lived to eat. And I always constantly was thinking about food. I was just absolutely obsessed with food. And as soon as I got done eating, I would be thinking, when can I eat again and what am I going to eat? And I was brought up, you know, just kind of on a standard American diet, but a very meat-heavy version. I grew up in Philadelphia, and there were a lot of, you know, Philadelphia uh, steak sandwiches. I never really liked cheese. I was big in the cheese steaks, but I sure loved the steak sandwiches and the corned beef sandwiches and barbecue, and, and just a very, very meat-heavy diet where I was taught that if you didn't eat meat, basically you're going to die. I mean, you had to eat meat. Mm. And so that's the way I grew up, and into adulthood, I gained a lot of weight in college. I was thin as a, a young child and an earl when I was a young teenager, but as I got older, I started to gain weight, and by the time I was in college, I'm 5'4", I was up somewhere north of 165, 170, but I stopped weighing myself, so I really don't know how heavy I got, but it, it was definitely gone into the obese category. And I was binge eating. I had absolutely no control over my eating. I would, you know, just obsess about it constantly, and when no one was looking, I'd kind of sneak out to the store and buy a couple packages of cookies and a container of ice cream and who knows what other junk and just kind of sneak it home and eat it. And then I'd say to people, gee, I, I don't know why I'm so heavy, because when I was in front of other people, I would just, like, eat a salad and a piece of chicken or something like that. Mm. So so even you knew that there was there was something sort of toxically secretive about the way you were eating. You, 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 weren't, even, you weren't even open about it with people that, uh, you know, here's what I eat. Right. And, you know, I think that's much more common than people let on, because obviously if people are secretly binge eating, they're really not wanting to talk about it because they're embarrassed and ashamed and they attribute it to a lack of willpower, a lack of self-control. And 
So they feel bad about themselves, and you don't want to share your kind of most damaging secret with other people for the most part. So people don't want to talk about this. And, you know, I, and I just feel tremendous compassion for people who are having this issue because I remember very clearly how I felt, which is that my life was totally out of control and I could never be happy. You know, no one would ever like me. It, I just became very much of a loner. I didn't even want to talk to people. So, you know, I just feel tremendous compassion if people are in a similar situation with any kind of eating disorder. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, I'm imagining that it was a, a vicious cycle, that those feelings of no one, no one will like me, I'm so ashamed of myself, fueled the eating because eating maybe made it feel better for a little while. Oh, it definitely made it feel better. I was actually eating. I felt great. It was only afterwards that I felt that, you know, I I just couldn't go on like this, but there didn't seem to be an alternative. It was like being in the grip of any kind of addiction. You know, it's just you can't break it by force of willpower. You know, there certainly takes, you know, motivation and commitment and so on, but that isn't enough. It, It has to be something else along with it. And, the fortunate thing for me is that when I got out of college on the East Coast, I went with a friend to the West Coast really just for a visit, but I ended up staying there. I kind of fell in love with San Francisco, and when I was out here, the binge eating just went away, and if I knew why and I could package that, I could help millions of people, but I never have been able to figure it out all these years. It just, when I hit San Francisco and I kind of got settled in here and I was walking up and down the hills every day and just kind of very absorbed in the natural beauty and so on, it just went away. So mm. I was really fortunate with that, but I didn't really lose weight right away. And then later on, you know, I kind of went on some various deprivation diets, lost weight, gained it back, lost weight, gained it back. But, you know, I usually was wavering somewhere around 145 most of my adult life, which is you know, certainly on a heavy end, but definitely not obese or, you know, totally abnormal for my height. So I was just going up and down. But then I started to get sick, and I developed all kinds of medical ailments, you know, just chronic aches and pains that nobody could ever explain, uh, just sinusitis that would last for months and months and months, frequent headaches. I'd have headaches every single morning. I was very depressed and fatigued and I never really thought this was strange, even though I, you know, I wasn't old. I was still a fairly young adult, but it seemed like most people I knew had some medical problems and were taking medications and went to the doctor on a regular basis. And so I didn't think it was strange. I did it. I was just doing what everybody else did. And so I didn't really question it or think that, you know, it could be caused by food. I mean, that would have been a laughable thought because I was just eating the way I always had and the way I'd been brought up and the way everybody I knew ate. So it would never have occurred to me it was related to food. And if anyone had told me then, back then, that I was, I would have just laughed at them. Mm-hmm. Can, can I ask you a question? Because I'm really interested in the 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 magical disappearance of your of your binge eating when you moved to San Francisco. And I know you can't, um, explain it, but did when it happened, did you trust it? Did you were you walking up and down and saying, you know, it's gone, or oh, I, I haven't felt this for a couple of days? Like, were you worried that it was going to come back, or was there a knowing, like, okay, I licked, you know, I don't know what happened, but it's gone. 
Well, at first I was kind of distrustful, and I would even go out and buy food. Like I would go out and buy these abnormal amounts of food and bring it back to my room. But I couldn't eat it. I mean, it was like the physical capacity to eat it had for some reason gone away. It was a physical shift. And I don't know what caused it. I really wish I did because I'd love to help everybody else out there, but I will never know. It was just the move. Maybe it was the exercise, the constant walking. Maybe it was, you know, the new interests and other things I got absorbed in, meeting a lot of new people, things like that. But I just physically could not eat it, and I did that several times where I'd go out and buy all this food and bring it back, and I couldn't eat it, so i just throw it out. And after I did that a few times, I didn't have much money because it was, you know, I was after college and I hadn't gotten a job yet, and I had very little money to waste, so I figured, well, this is good. I can save the money, and I just stopped buying it. And I did think about it from time to time, but honestly, it just almost went out of my mind. It was almost like you could have surgery to... You know, obviously I didn't have surgery, but almost like I had surgery to remove some growth or something, and then after it was gone, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, oh, move on to phase next phase of life. Okay. So, so after you were confident that the eating disorder was gone, um, you still were were trying all these diets. What was your goal in in you know not just eating normally? In quote. Well, my goal was just to lose weight. I mean, it never really occurred to me, and this might seem silly, but it never occurred to me that eating could affect my health. You know, and when I think of that now, I really have to smile because obviously it's the most fundamental thing people do that affects their health. But, you know, at the time, it just never occurred to me. I just wanted to get thin, and I wanted this yo-yo weight up and down and up and down and up and down to go away, you know, because I had all these different clothes. You know, I had my, my thin clothes and my heavier weight clothes and I really just wanted to be able to just have the thin clothes, but it never quite seemed to work. It never quite seemed to gel permanently. Mm. Why do you think that is that you know, I don't think you're alone in thinking that eating has nothing to do with health? Uh, I see it everywhere I go. It's like the last place we'd look. You know, if, if, the, if, the, if our doctor can't help us, we might go to a herbalist or a chiropractor or a Reiki healer or something, but we never think about the thing over which we have the most control. Why, why do you suppose that is in this culture, that uh, our, our ideas about food are so divorced from our ideas about health? Because I think it's so intertwined with our worldview. It's just how we see the world is this is a normal diet. This is what everybody eats. You know, if you tell people to eat any other way, they look at you like there's something wrong with you, and that is not normal. And so we don't have enough background or perspective to realize that the way we eat is not normal. It's not normal historically, and it's not even normal when you look around the world, or at least it hasn't been until very recently. So, you know, without that kind of background and perspective, we don't question it. It's kind of like there's a lot of things about our life we don't question. We don't question it's normal to go places in cars. And we don't question it's normal to go places in airplanes. We don't question it's normal to wear certain kind of clothes. It's just part of how we see the world because we were brought up that way. And yet in other cultures, people have very different ways of dressing and very different modes of transportation and all kinds of things like that. And so we just don't question what we see is so integral and fundamental to our worldview. We can't. It's like part of who we are. Hmm. So, uh, so, so what got you 
out of the matrix. What, what finally opened your eyes to the idea that, first of all, food matters, and second, what particular food uh, promotes health? Well, the real turning point for me came when my two daughters were 11 and 13. Of course, I'm leaving out all the non-food parts of the story, but I had gotten married and then divorced and two very wonderful daughters, but they were very strong-minded. And my kids always had a mind of their own ever since they were like toddlers, and they never quite grew out of that. So, And they used to go in and out of these little fads that maybe would last a few weeks or a few months or something. So my older daughter started this one. She just said to me one day she wasn't going to eat meat anymore. And I've, I got a little bit alarmed at first, but I thought well, this is probably just one of her little three-week fads, like she really likes unicorns or something like that. And then her younger sister, you know, decided to join her. And, you know, I, I was alarmed at first, but not too alarmed because I really thought it was going to be very short-term. But then I saw that they weren't going to give it up that quickly. And I still didn't think it would be permanent, but I started thinking, you know, I better get them to eat meat because I really had been taught that meat was the fundamental nutrient, and if you didn't eat meat, you would die. And these were still growing children. So what was going to happen to them? So at first I just tried to get them to eat meat, but that was kind of a lost cause because they're very strong-minded. And the more I tried to get them to eat it, the less they were going to do it. So I thought, well, I better start doing some research and finding out some other food I can feed them or some way of keeping them alive till they get over this one little fad, you know, so they're not permanently physically damaged by it. So I started doing a lot of research and, uh, you know, I have a PhD in human development and aging, so I wasn't just reading, you know, like popular magazines, you know, on newsstands about nutrition. I was reading things by, you know, medical doctors and dietitians, and obviously I was reading about vegetarian diets because that's what they were on. And what I found out fairly quickly was that vegetarian diets were actually healthier, and people on vegetarian diets were healthier than people on meat-based diets. So I began to relax a little about it. I stopped trying to force them to eat meat. I was fine just eating vegetarian at home, although if I was out, I would still eat meat. But here's the funny thing about meat. It's just a habit. And I found that out for myself. It's just a habit. And after I wasn't eating at home anymore, and I don't eat out that much. I never have been a big, you know, eating out type person. So I was very, very rarely eating meat. And I found that my taste for it began to go away. Like when I did eat it, it didn't even taste good for me anymore. And since I knew by then that I didn't have to eat it, I was just eating it less and less, and it became a cycle where the less I ate it, the less I liked it, and the less I liked it, the less I ate it. And at at some point, about a year later, I just decided to stop eating it. And I knew I had won when I got through Thanksgiving. You know, I made Thanksgiving that year with pretty much everything but the turkey, but absolutely everything else. And I thought, am I going to miss it? You know, this is going to be a hard Thanksgiving. And it was actually very easy and very pleasant, and we all had a great time and a great dinner. So I knew after that that I was done with meat. So you started looking for uh, vegetarian diet options that would compensate for your daughter's rebellion and and not not wanting to eat meat anymore. Uh, at what point did that shift from a compensation to to the realization that oh this is actually better? Was 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 your research? Um, showing that, or was it just trusting your taste buds that, that were starting to reject meat? 
You know, the research was definitely showing it. I mean, I was going to, you know, see professional people. I started going to vegetarian conferences. Uh, I heard some of the greats in, you know, vegetarian nutrition speak, like Dr. T. Colin Campbell and Caldwell Esselstyn and so on at different conferences. And also I was still living in Northern California at the time, and, you know, Dr. John McDougall has his practice here, and he would speak quite a bit locally, and I was able to hear him several times and uh, get his recipe book. Well, that was four years later I got his recipe book. But, you know, I was able to hear enough people credible to me to realize that this actually was healthier. And, but it was g- gradual. There wasn't any one thing that I could put my finger on to say, okay, this was the turning point. You know, it was just a matter of gradually building comfort and, you know, going to conferences and beginning to see, like, like to question what was normal. And this was the other thing, Howard, was the questioning what was normal because what I found out as I was doing research, and, and this was just even at the beginning, was every time I took a research question in my mind and started to hunt it down, what I found was the opposite of what I've been taught my entire life. So what I was finding is that everything I've been taught about nutrition my entire life, which pretty much centered in medical, middle school, you know, health classes on the four food groups, uh, you know, we were brought up to think the four food groups were meat and then dairy and then grains and then, you know, fruit and vegetables combined on this little, you know, square-shaped rectangular thing, little rectangular diagram you know, that everything I've been taught was pretty much wrong. So if I've been taught A, then the opposite of A was true. And that was the case for almost every research question I took up and studied. And, you know, I began to feel like I'd been betrayed, and I got kind of hooked on this research, which I still am today. It's it's pretty much how I spend virtually all the time I'm not working is doing this kind of research and, and keep learning things. And, again, it's the same phenomenon of everything I find out, oh, that's the opposite of what I was taught when I was in middle school or that I read in some popular magazine when I was waiting in the checkout line at the supermarket. It it was just all stood on its head. So a theme I'm hearing in your your life and your work is about uh, trust and lack of trust. Um, And I I see it in in your work and you talk a lot about body wisdom, the perfect the perfect formula diet, and you also have the perfect, you know, foods and the perfect body. There's a lot of trust in what you write. And from hearing your life story, it seems like you'd be the last person to trust your body and your impulses and what you hear, you know, the the so-called normal teachings on nutrition. How did you come from, you know, a total distrust to, to to coming to a sense of trust and what what had to happen for you to to make that shift? You know that's a really interesting question. I never thought about it quite in that way before. But first off, it was a very gradual process, and I think it was part of understanding how our bodies work more physiologically. You know that we are part of nature, and how our bodies work is governed by the laws of biology and chemistry and physics. And and I have always had a tremendous wonder at and respect for nature, even though, you know, I I grew up in a city. But you know, I've always loved trees and planting things and marveling at the beauty of nature and the night sky and uh, the beauty of animals and things like that. And 
I, but I didn't really see myself in that context. And as I began to really study on a very basic level, almost like a doctor, you know, how does the human body work? How does the immune system work? How does the digestive system work? How does the nervous system work? You know, I began to see that there's certain laws of nature that govern how we work. And when I really began to think of it, I realized that, you know, humans are very much akin to other species in many ways. And we don't question for other species that their bodies know how to work. You know, we don't question that our cat knows what to eat and she knows how to digest her food and so on. And and we certainly don't question that of a wild animal, you know, a, a lion or something like that. We don't question the lion has to take supplements or go to the doctor, you know, every year or anything like that. So why would humans be any different? Why of all the species on the face of this planet would the human body be so ill-designed that it doesn't work when the bodies of every other species on the planet works? And I began to see humans in the context of evolution, of, you know, the laws I was learning, you know, because I was reading medical books by then. I lived near UCSD, and I would just go up there whenever I could afford one and buy a new textbook and read it through. And, you know... If our bodies work that way, you know, we have to be able to trust it because they're extremely complex interconnected systems. And when you have a very complex system, you can't go just in and tinker with one part and think it's not going to have consequences because when you tinker with one part, it kind of reverberates throughout the whole. And as I began to see my body that way and and, and just really the bodies of the whole human species that way, I did begin to acquire that trust because I began to have the same trust in my body as, as say, like a healthy lion out on the savannas would have on his or her body. It's just designed by nature to serve you, and if you honor it and give it what it needs and get out of your own way and you stop poisoning yourself, then you're going to naturally want to find health and you can start healing very quickly. Mm, beautifully put. So you you had a lot of experiences with diets that didn't work, and you you write about some of the reasons they don't work, and they often have to do with this this lack of trust. For example, you talk about portion control, and I've never heard anyone put it so starkly, but you said portion control is a code word for hunger. Can Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, portion control really is a way of trying to artificially control your body to say that some, you know, educated person who has a clinical degree knows more about what you should eat than your own body knows. So that if your body is hungry and says, you know, I need more food, but you look in the, you know, little food pyramid or whatever put out by the U.S. government or whatever you're looking at, it says, no, half a cup of, you know, cereal is enough and one cup of cooked vegetables and all this kind of thing. That's enough. That's a portion size. That's a serving size. You're done. You know, you really have to trust that your body knows more than this person with some kind of clinical degree knows because how did they find out? I mean, they're probably doing research that was funded by a drug company or somebody else with some hidden agenda. So if you're eating the right food, you don't have to do artificial portion control. And the other thing about portion control is that it totally breaks down your self-confidence because, you know, it's very artificial. It's like trying to control how you're going to breathe. So if you wanted to say, well, really, the proper way to breathe is to take X breaths per minute. Well, no, your body knows how much oxygen you need based on 
zillion things that are happening, how active you're being and how hot it is and what you just ate, what's going on internally, what you're thinking about. I mean, all those things can govern how much oxygen you need, and your body automatically compensates for that, and it keeps you breathing at exactly, you know, the right amount of oxygen for your body. Uh And, you know, if you try to hold your breath and say, I don't need to breathe that much, eventually you're going to. I mean, there's only so long you can hold your breath. I mean, if you try to hold it too long, you'll pass out, and then you'll unconscious takes over, you're going to start breathing the way you should again. So it's the same way with eating, that, you know, your body knows how much you eat. It knows what nutrients you need. You know, it's a big eye-opener for me to find out that your body monitors the calories you eat and the nutrients you eat. It doesn't just monitor whether it's stretchful or not. I mean, almost everybody knows their stomach has stretch receptors and you have to fill your stomach to feel full. But what I didn't know was that it also monitors the nutrients that you eat and the calories you eat, and everything has to be exactly what it needs or it's going to send you out for more. Mm. So even without portion control, if you're eating a lot of calories, but you're not getting the nutrients you need, your body's going to send you out and get more. And at some point, it becomes a physiological process where you can't resist it any more than you could resist breathing if you needed oxygen. And, you know, that whole portion control thing is so artificial. It goes so much against the grain of nature. And what if you look out, you see every other species on the face of the planet eating, uh, doing rather, it just, it doesn't make any sense. So you have to design a way of eating where you can get all the nutrients you need, all the calories you need, and your stomach can be full. And then your body will be satisfied, and then you can stop eating and be very happy and not think about food. You can think about everything else you want to on the face of the planet, but food is not going to be top of mind because your body has everything you need. Gosh, the, the, I love that metaphor with breathing because it, it makes me think that so, you know our our food environment is is pretty much the same as if we were you know in a in a building on fire and there was smoke and there was just bad air. And so people would tell you, well, don't take in too much, and here, put on this mask, and here's some techniques for holding your breath until you can, you know, get a good gasp of air, and and how unnatural that would be, and how unnecessary it would be once you're out of the building. Exactly. You know, that's a great analogy. I I haven't thought that, but that's a wonderful analogy. It is in terms of, you know, how the standard American diet works. It's like being in a burning building and thinking that's totally normal and you have to go to all these abnormal measures to get, you know, oxygen when actually all you have to do is walk out of the building. It's that simple and you can breathe again and you're fine. So and, and how uh how ob- you know, how much you would think about breathing as long as you're in that building. Like that would be your obsession. Where can I get another where can I get another breath? Exactly. that You know, and, and air is just such a good analogy for food because it's the other thing we need in order for our metabolism to work. You know, our body basically burns food. Of course, it doesn't burn it the way you burn wood in a fireplace, but, you know, it's it's a slow, controlled burn that's controlled by all kinds of different enzymes and very, very complex processes to get the energy out of food with environmental things other than water, of course, being the third that we need. And so it, it's very good when you can give people an analogy with air, which I do several points in the book, and you've just, you know, come up with another very good one. It, you know, it just makes it very much easier to grasp what's going on. Mm. So, so another um, 
thing that you talk about around current diet um, sensibility is the idea of superfoods. And you use the, the line, an apple a day keeps the doctor away, which I always thought was kind of, you know, sort of promoting a plant-based diet. But in, your, in the context of what you're talking about it, it really elevates apples beyond pears, peaches, plums, broccoli, turmeric, everything else. Uh, what's, the, what's the danger of superfood thinking? Well, there's a couple dangers. One is that it gives you leave to eat anything else you want. So in other words, if you eat the current superfood of the day, whatever that is, then a lot of people are left with the thought, okay, now I can just eat, you know, whatever junk food I want. I can eat potato chips and, you know, meat and donuts and whatever I want, but I just ate my superfood. So it's kind of like the sense of assurance they get from taking a vitamin pill, that now they're going to be healthy because they just gave their body in a pill or in some particular food what they need. And it kind of clears the way to do that. The other is that, you know, you can eat too much of a superfood. You know, every food is a balance. Every food contains tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands to more nutrients um, and other substances. And we don't even know for the most part what they are. This is a good deal of what Dr. T. Colin Campbell's book, Cole, is about, which to me is, is just one of the most brilliant books on nutrition ever written, just on a more scientific basis and the whole paradigm of how we think about food. So he talks about there's these tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of chemicals or substances in each food. And for the most part, we don't even know what they are. And if we eat a meal of several whole foods, we've just taken in, you know, literally millions of different substances, and we have no idea in what quantity we took them in or how much is going to be absorbed or how they're going to interact. And we have to trust our body for all, you know, to make all that right. We have to let our body do the math, as you say. And and you know this well because you're certainly one of the authors of this book. So, you know, I guess the point is if you're eating too much of any one food because there's all these substances in any one food, some are going to be good and some are going to be bad. And if you eat too much of any one food, it's bad. I've actually been thinking about this a lot lately because I'm starting to think more about the pattern value of foods. So let's say, for example, kale. This is a very good example. Kale has lately been regarded as a superfood. People just want to eat a lot of kale, and you'll see T-shirts that say things like, kale is a new meat or kale is what's for dinner. And, you know, people eat these green smoothies and, and juice like, you know, pounds of kale every day and everything like that. And, you know, kale is a great food. If we looked at perfect foods, kale would certainly be right near the top of the list. But a diet based on all kale is not a healthy diet. It's just not a healthy diet. And for one thing, it's greatly lacking calories. And secondly, as much as there's wonderful things in kale, there's also going to be things in kale that aren't so good because that's true of every food out there. And so because there's things in kale that are not so good, if you're just eating nothing a day but 20 pounds of kale, and, you know, you could get all the calories you need from 20 pounds of kale, so you could actually eat it and chew it and digest it. (laughs) Well, it, it would contain things that in the amounts that you're eating are not good because that's an extremely common nutrition myth, and I talk about this a lot when I do presentations. There's a myth that says if a little is good, more is better, and that is not true at all. If a little is good, more is probably toxic and harmful. 
And so what you want to eat is a diet with a very wide variety of foods. You want to eat a wide variety of vegetables, a wide variety of fruits, a wide variety of whole grains, a wide variety of beans and potatoes, and use different seasonings on your food, you know, a lot of different herbs and spices, and, you know, eat some occasional, you know, dry roasted or raw nuts and seeds, you know, not in big quantities, but a little bit here and there, you know, obviously unless you're allergic to them. And then when you have all these wide variety of foods, what happens is your body gets the best of them because usually it only needs fairly small amounts and they can operate together very synergistically. But you're not going to be overloaded with what's bad in any one food. So you're kind of going to get the best of all the worlds. And if there's something in a food that is not good, since you're not eating that much of any one food because you're eating so many different foods, then the bad effects are going to be minimized as well. So, you know, really the diet I um, recommend to people is a diet based on very large variety of whole plant foods and not just eating, say, kale or eating just berries or something like that, which is, you know, the kind of direction I'll sometimes see people taking or they'll, you know, be eating a standard American diet, but they always have kale for dinner and, and they think now they're okay. Mm. It, it reminds me a lot of my work as a gardener, which is, you know, there's no way to only have the good things in the garden. Um, you know, if I want to have the birds, you know, pooping nitrogen and uh, eating the bugs, then I need to have the bugs. And, you know, I look at the difference between my garden, which requires sort of constant tending so I get to satisfy my tastes, and the forest just beyond where where everything is in balance. The, you know, the healthy ecosystems are characterized by biodiversity, and so should our diet, so should our plates. Oh, absolutely. And there's no doubt when our ancestors were foraging for food, they would, if they found something edible, they'd eat it, you know, and within the limits of, you know, what they were able to digest and so on. It's just better to eat a wide variety of foods. Unfortunately, you know, because there's no money in this kind of thing, there's not the kind of research we would like. I mean, we have to be able to think in the big picture to read thousands of articles to start putting a big puzzle together in our mind. I mean, I always constantly have this mental puzzle of nutrition in my mind. It's almost like a visual thing. I'm seeing it. And every time I learn a new fact from a credible study or, or something else I'm learning about at a conference or whatever, I'll start rearranging the pieces and the puzzle, the picture, the big picture is always the same, but the details can change. And, you know, I'm always trying to say, okay, what's the big picture? How does this all fit together? Is is there one fact that seems to scrap in out of the 100,000 that aren't? I better chase that one down and see how it fits in. And, you know, we have to be open to doing that, just like you're saying, in order to make it work. Well, how do you decide uh, whether a study is credible or not. And I, I get this question all the time. My friends know my views on food. And so every time there's a new article about, you know, this low-carb diet is good uh, or the Mediterranean diet with lots of oil is good, they send it to me. And they say, huh, what do you think of that? And their assumption is I'm biased. So I'm naturally going to look for all of the flaws in that study and ignore the flaws in the studies that support what I want. And I can't argue with them. I don't I, you know, I hope I'm not that way, but it, it certainly seems plausible. Um, how do you decide 
whether you know whether a study is any good or not, even if it's a, a finding that maybe contradicts your your general worldview. Well, I look very closely at number one, how was the study done? And a lot of times you don't have that much information. So in most studies of diet and food, they don't tell you what the people are actually eating. They'll tell you how many grams of fat and how many grams of protein and how many grams of carbohydrate. And they might talk about the glycemic index. But in most studies, you don't get the information you need to really draw a decision because they don't tell you the actual foods that people were eating. And that's enormously frustrating. But if all they're talking about is, you know, grams of this macronutrient, you know, grams of that macronutrient, you have to think right there that it's not a very good study. Because on a good study, you're going to look at the actual foods people are eating and not just how much fat is in it. Because, you know, fats range from everything from, you know, the fats in ground flaxseed and, you know, avocados and a handful of walnuts and things that are fine in small amounts to, you know, the kind of fats that are meat. I mean, there's zillions of kind of fats. So you can't lump them all together, which is what these studies do. And the same thing with carbohydrates. I mean, that ranges everything from, you know, a candy bar up to, you know, beans and whole grains and things that have been actually healthy. So, you know, I tend to look for studies that talk about specific foods and talk about what people actually ate more than studies that just talk about grams of this and grams of that because those people are asking the wrong question. What they're assuming is that every kind of food that contains X grams of fat is pretty much exactly the same. And if they're starting with that assumption, they're asking the wrong question. And and that pretty much rules out the fact that the results are going to have any kind of meaning. And then another thing to look at is who funded the study. I mean, you have to go to the very, very back usually to see that, these kind of stated conflicts of interest. And if you find, for example, all the olive oil in the study was donated free of charge by some Spanish olive oil company, that kind of makes you think there's some kind of bias. And the thing people don't realize is people don't have to be deliberately dishonest. Scientists don't have to be deliberately dishonest to have a bias. They don't have to say to themselves, you know, I got all this free olive oil, and therefore I'm going to have to find something that validates the value of this olive oil, even if I have to change the data, even if I have to lie and, and rearrange the data or things like that. They don't have to do that. They just have to have a kind of bias where when they're looking at the statistics, which can be very hard to interpret, that they pick out the ones that are friendly. And, and that could even just be unconscious. So, uh, well, you know, it's yeah. really important to look at the funding. Yeah, I mean, I, I had that experience personally when, you know, my other career is in uh, digital marketing, and I was call, I was uh, hired as an expert witness in a case about, uh, you know, click fraud and advertising. And when I was on the stand, I told the truth, but I, I knew which, which of the sides was paying me. Yeah, yeah, you exactly. Know? So yeah, I didn't, that's a good I didn't way. say anything, you know, that was per, perjurous or, or – or, or inaccurate in any way, but I certainly was conscious of a pressure to to please the people who were who were paying my uh, my salary. Exactly, exactly. It and a lot of studies, you know, they're just nonsense. That's another thing to look at in this study: is how does it fit in with the broad realm of other studies that have been done? And let's look at whole grains as a good example of that, because you know, grains are a food that's 
you know, widely disrespected and they get put down a lot and people go, you know, whole grains really aren't healthy because they have this or that or the other chemical in them, even though they're looking at the food that has 100,000 chemicals in it, they go, it has this one in it and, and therefore it's not any good. Well, when you look at actual studies in the real world of people that actually eat whole grains, what you find uniformly, and I've been looking at these studies since 1995, is that people who eat more whole grains are healthier. I've never seen a study ever that shows that people who eat more whole grains are less healthy or more prone to have a certain disease or whatever. And and obviously we're leaving out celiac or specific you know allergies or sensitivities people might have, but just on a whole looking on a population-wide basis, people that eat a lot of whole grains are healthier. And so, you know, when you hear people say things like, you know, oh, carbs are bad, um, you know, these kind of studies that show, you know, oh, the people on the low-carb diet, you know, lost more weight or their blood numbers got better, something like that. It's like, well, what happened to all the thousands of studies that showed the people who eat whole grains are healthier? You know, it it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit in. I mean, you could almost dismiss it on the basis of it doesn't make any sense because it goes contrary to so many thousands of studies and things that have been shown beyond any doubt to be true that, you know, what they're saying, it just, you know, it's just nonsense. Mm. And yet I remember um, reading uh, one of those books, Wheat Belly, uh, several years ago, and while I was in it, kind of being impressed by what looked to be a preponderance of evidence, all these different studies, all these different uh, examinations of the, you know, the, the genetics of the new wheat, um, you know, and then looking at Gary Taub's books, there are tons and tons of references. Um, you know, it, it, it takes a superhuman effort to go through each one of those and and say, this isn't a very good study, this isn't very relevant. And when you do that, it, it just it just feels like like you're just being a downer. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, a, there's a sense in which I, I kind of just give up and let people think whatever they want, just, just because it, it feels so ungenerous of me to keep pointing out the flaws in, in the other side's uh, research. Right, and it gets very tedious, too. I mean, I've had people ask me to do that kind of thing many times for different books, um, you know, to say, well, can we debunk this book, can we debunk that book, and all that kind of thing. And and sometimes I will do it. I mean, I've been on radio shows where, you know, we've debunked a certain book or something like that. But for the most part, I stay away from that because I think that by debunking it, in some ways, you're almost honoring it by saying it's important enough to debunk. And what I want people to realize is, you know, these kind of books are such complete and utter nonsense that you shouldn't use them to guide your life any more than you would use some, you know, romantic bestseller to guide your life. I mean, if you want to, you know, read a book about, you know, the latest New York Times bestseller about some, you know, tarred love affair or something, and it's it's all very gripping and it gets made into a movie, that's fine. I mean, read it to amuse yourself. You know, a lot of people like books like that and, and have fun with it. But don't use it as a guide to how you should live your life and forge your relationships and get along with other people because it's fiction and it's not how the real world operates. And, you know, most people know that even when they're reading it, like, oh, this isn't going to happen to me. You know, this isn't the way relationships really work. And it's the same thing 
when you're reading these food books. They're just pure and utter fantasy. And I don't like to take the time to debunk them because I feel like it takes what limited time I have away from what's really important, which is finding out what the real big picture is and being able to point out to people, you know, if they say, you know, eating low-carb is the way you should eat and that all these grains are really bad for you and, and you should just be eating meat, then how come every single study that's ever been done, thousands and thousands and thousands of studies, show that people who eat more whole grains are actually healthier? I mean, just kind of pulling back to reality. Like, you know, look at planet Earth. You live on planet Earth. You live among people. Look around you, you know, and see which people are healthier. And then you don't have to get into the fantasies of these books unless you just for some reason enjoy reading them. Right. Although I, I do have to say that most people, most lay people, uh, without a, a, uh, a bias, if they read Whole and they read a book like uh, Green Brain or The Big Fat Surprise, they would not be able to determine which is true and which is false. So I, ju- I just went to a, uh, a voice lesson, and my teacher asked me, uh, so what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I, I teach and write, among other things, I teach and write about nutrition. And she said, oh, well, I know, I know the secret to a healthy diet. I said, oh, really? What, what is it? She said, everything in moderation. And, oh, yeah. And, you know, so I, I don't... I think the people who write the bad books are possibly better at marketing than the people who write the good books, or or it's just that their you know their messages are are much more uh, palatable to our uh, you know addicted palates. Um, but I you know I do find that most most well-meaning people are laboring under tremendous myths about what constitutes a good diet. Could you talk a little bit about the the moderation issue? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that is another one of the main myths is everything in moderation, or moderation is okay. Well, you know, the thing about eating something that's actually toxic in moderation is that it's still causing inflammation. So, for example, on cigarettes, as little as three cigarettes a day can increase your risk of heart disease by 64%. So you might say, well, gee, three cigarettes really isn't very much, and, you know, you can't be too much more moderate in smoking than three cigarettes a day. How come? Well, the reason is that every time you smoke, you're causing inflammation in your body. You're basically poisoning your body. And if you do that three times a day, that's over 1,100 times a year. So basically, if you smoke in moderation, you're harming your body over 1,100 times a year. It never has time to heal. It's constantly being um, irritated. And so, of course, you know, you're going to have severe health consequences for that. And it's exactly the same thing with food. I mean, a lot of times when you tell people about the tobacco, they see it and then they kind of grasp the big picture. It's the same thing with food. If you're eating meat even once a day, I mean, I had somebody tell me recently that She's pretty much on a plant-based diet, but she eats three ounces of chicken every day at once, every day at lunch. Mm. And I said, well, then you're poisoning your body 365 times a year. You're not giving it time to heal. Why wouldn't that lead you to have chronic inflammatory conditions? Because she has several health conditions and chronic pain and so on. And she, she doesn't understand why it doesn't go away because the amount of chicken sheets is so moderate. I mean, she actually measures it out at three ounces and she only eats it once a day. So why would that hurt her? Right. Well, so then, I'm only going to hit myself in the head with a hammer once a day and I'm going to do it gently. Exactly. The, the headaches 
don't haven't gone away. Exactly. And what it doesn't honor is the process of inflammation, which I describe very extensively in my book, because inflammation is a process and has a beginning and a middle and in the end. And, you know, in the beginning, it's it's acute and it's protective. But if it's allowed to proceed through to the end, it becomes healing and then eventually it goes away. Like, say you've got a really bad scrape on your arm. Right. At first, it's going to be very painful and it's going to be all inflamed and you're going to want to try to keep it clean and make sure it doesn't get infected and all that kind of thing. And then gradually the inflammation will go away. Well, exactly the same process ends in the healing of that scrape. And you might have some scar tissue, you might not have some scar tissue, but eventually it's going to totally heal, won't hurt anymore, you'll forget you ever had that scrape. And it's exactly the same thing with food. So what would happen if you had that scrape on your arm? And instead of letting it heal every single day at lunch, you took out a piece of sandpaper and you sandpapered that scrape every day for 10 minutes a day. Would it ever heal? Oh, <laughs> I'm getting heebie-jeebies just thinking about that image. Right. Of course it would never heal because even if you're only sandpapering it 10 minutes a day, you don't have to sandpaper it 24 hours a day for it not to heal. You only have to do it a very short time each day to interrupt that healing process and keep it from proceeding to the end. And when people have this myth of moderation, which is probably even more prevalent than the low-carb myth, you know, they, they're basically, they're doing that to themselves. It's like every day they're scraping the, um, the scrape with sandpaper because they're eating toxic foods that are inciting more inflammation and not allowing the process to proceed to healing. When you stop putting in the toxins and the inflammatory um, chemicals that are in animal foods and you're eating whole plant foods which promote healing, the healing can happen very quickly. And if things do happen that cause inflammation, which of course they will, you know, you're going to be attacked by a microbe or of some sort or, you know, you're going to fall down and get hurt or cut yourself or, you know, get a burn in the kitchen or something your body can heal very quickly because the process of inflammation can proceed exactly like it's supposed to at exactly the pace it's supposed to. And you'll find that either if it's a microbe, you don't get sick at all, or you only get mildly sick and you get over it very quickly for the most part. So, you know, these chronic diseases can go away, but you have to give your body the space to heal. And and that's why, you know, I have very mixed feelings about diets that say, you know, it's okay to eat small amounts of animal foods because at some level, you know, they are getting people on a healthier diet. I mean, people are getting 95% of their calories from whole plant foods and, say, 5 to 10% or whatever from animal foods. You know, they're, they're still having this process of inflammation. It's going to be attenuated, and it's certainly better than eating the standard American diet. You know, so there's no question it's way better than the standard American diet. And for a lot of people, it's going to be good enough to get them to where they need to be because people say, well, you know, I don't want to be vegan. I hate the V word. I'll never be vegan. And I'm like, okay, then just eat meat once a week, you know, just in small amounts. So, you know, it's a start. But Mm -hmm. on the other hand, it's always better to eat plant-based and then you can let your appetite for these foods will just go away because if you're not eating them, really your appetite for them will just totally vanish. No matter how much you eat now of meat or eggs or dairy or fish, I can assure you that, you know, if you stop eating them, I don't know how long this is going to take. It could be really in as little as a few weeks. Your taste for them will go away because your taste buds are going to change. So by 
you know, this myth of moderation, you're basically keeping your tastes alive for unhealthy foods. And that, I guess that's the problem when people want to make the transition. Most people that I know eat almost no produce, you know, what you call perfect foods. And so naturally their taste buds are not uh, accustomed to them and the food feels, you know, bland, boring, and just sort of punishment, especially, you know, eat your peas, eat your vegetables before you get dessert. How do you help, just in a couple minutes we have left, how do you help people when they say, okay, I kind of believe you, my head knows it, but I don't know how to do it? How do you help people begin the transition? Well, I really try to find out where they are. What are they willing to do? Are they willing to you know, eat a healthy breakfast every day? Are they willing to one day a week eat healthy foods? Are they willing to just uh, begin eating half as much meat and twice as much vegetables and fruit? I I really try to find out where they are. I don't know that there's a one-size-fits-all. I really believe that people have to go through a process of stages of change, and you have to work with them and honor where they are and respect where they are, and that, you know, in some ways, you know, they're different from other people, not biologically, but psychologically. And so, you know, you really want to work with them. So I don't have a rule of thumb other than trying to find out where they're at, what their motivation is, what they're willing to do, where they're willing to start, and really support them at that and help them realize that, you know, wherever you start, it's great to start. It doesn't really matter where you start, but what you need to have is an end point in mind. So if you're realizing as you look around that whole food plant-based diets are best, but you're not willing to jump into a fee first, okay, what are you willing to do? And if you have the end point in mind and you advance a little bit every week, you know, you make meaningful changes every week with your large goal in mind, then that's fine. I mean, it took me four years to transition from just being a vegetarian diet to being on a totally plant-based diet and not long, maybe just like six months after that to to really becoming whole foods, but I've been, you know, refining that for many years. So, you know, you just, I really think the way to help people is just to respect, talk to them and work with them and help them see that, you know, this is a process and, you know, they can do it. Give them the confidence to know they can do it, that millions of other people have done it and you can do it too. Awesome. Well, there's so much that I want to talk to you about, and I'm looking at my page of notes, and we didn't talk about the wellness projects you do for employers. Uh, I'd love to follow up on, uh, like, how your daughters eat now and uh, how how your relationship is, uh, you know, was it 20 years after the initial uh, meatless epiphanies. Uh, I would love to have you back, but for right now, if people want to find you, uh, tell, tell us where we can get more of Janice Tanger. Okay, well, go to perfectformuladiet.com, and there's a contact page on the form. You can email me through that contact page. Uh, you can read quite a few posts. I have almost 150 posts now on whole food plant-based diets and related topics. And if you go to YouTube and search for my name, you'll see a couple presentations that are on YouTube uh, that I did for Vegetarian Society of Hawaii, one on 10 Dangerous Nutrition Myths. And the other is a dangerous truth about protein. And those have quite a bit of very important information, little-known information that you really need to know. Mm, Great. And your book, The Perfect Formula Diet, is available both from Amazon and from your website? 
Absolutely, yeah, and it's also available as an ebook in pretty much any ebook store, Kindle, or you know what other ebook reader you have. So that's very easy to get. So again, this is a this is a great book to uh, to give to people who are new to this. Uh, it's it's so readable, it's so accessible, it's quite humble, and very comprehensive and convincing. So Janice Spanger, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Glad to do it. All right. Be well. You too. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.